good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll talk to the author of a new novel that's on several top ten summer reading lists. The book is called The Three of Us. Theater critic Carrie Reed will join me to talk about the world premiere production of Shaw vs. Tunney, a play about an unlikely friendship. Later in the show, I'll take you with to the Elmhurst Art Museum to check out its latest exhibit, Marvelosity. I'll check in with the Chicago Scots president to preview the 37th annual Scottish Festival and Highland Games. And we'll have a story about a critically acclaimed local documentary that was nominated for a Peabody Award. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. How would you cope if the two most important people in your life hated each other? Hopefully that's not your reality or something you've ever had to deal with. The situation is at the heart of the new hit novel, The Three of Us. It comes from British-Nigerian writer Ore Agbaje Williams. The story swirls around three central characters, a wife, a husband, and the best friend. The wife character is in the middle of a years-long rivalry between her spouse and her oldest best friend, Teme. Neither the wife nor the husband's names are ever revealed. The Three of Us unfolds over the course of a single day where a series of events ramps up the tensions between the three. We, the readers, get a sense of each character's true feelings because Agbaje Williams gives us each of their point of views at different parts of the day. I recently caught up with the London-based author to talk about her new novel. So I think I, I read that you had been playing around with this idea for a while. What was the, the starting point for what ended up turning into The Three of Us? I had just started seeing somebody, um, and I was telling my best friend, uh, Grace, who the book is dedicated to, actually, and I was saying, oh, I really like him, and she sort of off joke. She was like, oh, now you're going to get a boyfriend, and I'm never going to see you, you're going to take up all your time. And I said, oh, no, you have to understand that you come first. Um, and um, uh, so then it got me thinking of, actually, I wonder what would happen if, you know, there was a situation whereby a best friend wasn't happy about a relationship, and you know, there was someone caught in the middle and how that would all work. And then the character of Temi was literally the first person I wrote. So the first line that's in there is the first line I wrote in the book, Temi comes over at 12. And it all just sort of flowed from there. Um, and thankfully, I sort of kept going with it and really just enjoyed the process of writing it, honestly. And yeah, ended up here, which is incredible. Right, right. Safe to say that not not autobiographical, Grace and Temi aren't the same? No, thank goodness. My, my <laughs> friend Grace is honestly one of the... One of the loveliest people in the world. So even though she likes to think it's inspired by her, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we have the wife, her husband, and her best friend, and, and we really get to know each of them because we're getting their innermost thoughts. What was your approach to, to creating these three characters? Um, I've honestly wanted characters who felt a bit ridiculous. Um, I love the idea of sort of rich, messy people. Like, I really love TV shows like Succession, and White Lotus, and I also really love, really love the series uh, Big Little Lies, like just those concepts where you have really wealthy people just behaving quite ridiculously, um, and I really love that idea, and I wanted to tap into it from a sort of British-Nigerian perspective, and 
all surrounding like a really minute, well, minute or big problem, depending on how you see it. And so I just thought, who are the most ridiculous, excessive characters you can find? You have the wife who's very sort of one note and droll. She seems to be kind of emotionless. And then the husband who complains about everything. And then Tammy, who has absolutely no filter and says everything that is on her mind. Um, and I just, <laughs> I thought that was a really interesting um, sort of dynamic to have the three of them like that. So, um, and they just, they just sort of built, built sort of mind of their own as I wrote them. Um, and I felt like I was getting to know them better as, as I was writing them as well. As far as writing style, we get each of their perspectives at different points of this wine-soaked day. Uh, did you, <laughs> did you play around with POV shifts during the? The writing process or did you always know like I, I wanted to kind of go chronologically I think I knew I wanted to go chronologically when I realized I was going to write three perspectives because originally I think I had just thought it would be the wife um, and then I thought okay actually no I need to hear from the other two and I thought for me at least I thought Tammy would be the most explosive because she seems to be the one at least according to the husband at least and maybe a bit of the wife the one who's causing the most tension so I thought she's going to be sort of the, the climax of it, the one that everyone's looking forward to, so she needs to come at the end. So I think I, I knew once I decided I was going to get three perspectives. Let's pause here for a second and listen to a clip from the audio version of The Three of Us. This is from the wife's perspective at the very beginning of the book. Timmy comes over at 12. She brings along the wine and the kettle chips I asked her to bring, as well as a packet of cigarettes. She called when she was at the till to ask if I needed a lighter because the woman who was serving her had asked the same question. I could tell she had the phone in between her shoulder and her chin, because I could hear her coat rustling. I said no to the lighter, because we had matches at home, but also because I knew I wouldn't end up smoking, not if my husband would be able to smell it on me. She was late. I knew she would be. She told me she would get here by 11, but it was 11.45 when she called me from the shop. I knew she would be late before that, though, because she always is. It's her thing. She's the only person I let come to anything late. That's what happens when you're best friends. You let things slide. Besides, today we were supposed to have been in another country, acting like we didn't speak English and wearing sunglasses indoors, and it's my fault we're not. Something that she reminded me of when she informed me this morning that she would be coming over. I haven't seen her in almost a month, so I can't really justify complaining. So anyway, she arrives at 12. That's a clip from the audiobook version of The Three of Us. My name's Gary Zydek. You're listening to The Art Section. I'm talking with the novel's author, Ori Agbaje-Williams. And then something that I ended up really taking to was the, the way you wrote the, uh, the characters' internal monologues. Even as conversations are happening, it all kind of blends into a singular narrative. Well, I didn't really meant to do it on purpose until I found myself doing it I suppose and I think what I felt was just because like you said it was these internal monologues that if I pulled the speech out that it would feel just kind of like they were telling a story and in as much as they kind of are telling a story of sorts they're not doing it actively they're just kind of presenting their own version of the truth from inside their own minds and so I thought it makes the most sense to have that sort of come out in their own voice and have it all feel very internal because even the way they are representing what people are saying is very much how they are hearing it and how they are interpreting it rather than not it being 100% accurate to what's being said. So I thought that would be a really good way of sort of putting those two, pulling those two ideas together about the internal monologue and also them presenting their versions of the truth. And yeah, I just, I really liked it. I liked the way it flowed and I liked sort of the way it felt writing it as well. So then I just sort of really fell into it and really enjoyed it. 
yeah it took me like a second so when i started it and then like quickly i was like oh yeah this makes total sense um <laughs> and then just to kind of go along with that i and i don't want to like, oversimplify by like referencing pop culture but yeah i get that the white lotus and the um even like maybe a little real housewives and then yeah. uh and then the internal monologue i don't know if did you ever watch that um that British sitcom peep show, like it gave me that kind of vibe yeah. a little bit. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Everything uh, takes place over the the course of a, a single day. Was the the scope of the the story something that that evolved, or is that just a way to keep it concise? It was definitely a way to keep it concise, especially because I thought that if you're going to be inside these people's heads the entire time, I didn't want you to go from wife to husband to best friend and then have to go back to the wife again. Um, I thought that it needed to be kept really uh, quite insular. And I also thought that you get more of that heightened part of the tension if you do have those, if you do have everything taking over the course of one day and you know that that means that something's going to happen at the end. So you're kind of waiting for something to kind of explode before, just before or when you get to the end. And also I, I love, yeah, the idea of that pressure cooker and also the fact that you then kind of get snippets at the past, but you get them from each person's perspective. Uh, perspective so even the way that the husband and wife meet they both have different versions of it and Temi kind of has her own version of it so you all everyone gets a sort of different version of the truth um, as they go sort of delve into bits of the past but then you know still that the present is that very looming thing and what's going to happen is they drink more wine and the husband comes home and you have all these different things that occur and I just thought that'd be a really fun way to sort of really amp up the tension and make it seem like this is a really significant day where something whether good or bad is going to happen. And we won't give any spoilers away, of course, but uh, as the day progresses and more wine is, is drunk, then, uh, you know, things uh, definitely amp up uh, later in the day. Is that something also where right from the beginning, did you know how you wanted to end it? No, and actually the book ended completely differently when I first wrote it. Um, and then my agent, my literary agent said to me, she was like, this, this ending is just not paying off. And the thing is, I knew it wasn't because when I got to the end of the book, when I finished writing it, I didn't even read through it. I just pressed save and sent it off to her and the first time with the first draft. So I, I, I knew that I hadn't um, necessarily written anything that was particularly profound or had a good, good enough payoff. But when she talked about the things that already existed in the book and she was thinking about how can we make sure that this does have a good payoff, she really got me thinking about exactly how that would work and the things that I could explore. And I was like, okay, this makes so much sense. And you're right, I could really explore these things a lot more. So, um, yeah, it made a lot more sense when she helped me do that. But no, originally the ending was, was completely different. Um, but it was, um, I'm so glad that I changed it because I think it's a much better ending now. <laughs> <laughs> so I think like the best, you know, the best pieces of uh, culture, uh, films, TV shows, books, are like Rorschach tests where we, you know, different, we can all look at them and get different things. Mm. You know, with these characters, I've, you know, that's kind of the sense I get. If I talk to like a, a group of three different people that read this, uh, we might come away with uh, three different takes on, on the characters. Now that the, the book is out, are you enjoying reading how various people are interpreting it? Yes, that has been one of the most um, enjoyable parts of this process, actually. Because some people have had very, very visceral reactions to the best friend. Um, and some people have gone to the end of it like, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what just happened. <laughs> I, just, I need more or stuff like that. And I, I really love those reactions. Just even hearing people, watching people in the comments talk about it, like under a post where someone shared it. And they're like, oh, I thought this and I thought this. I've really, really enjoyed that. And then even getting to talk to people like you about it is just incredible. And I think that's 
one of the most enjoyable parts of this process, just getting to hear people's different reactions and see how they've interpreted it. And also knowing that they feel very strongly and deeply about certain characters has been really fun. I had to check myself because, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm identifying too much with the husband. You know, I got to give <laughs> I got to give Temi a chance here. Um <laughs> And then I did uh, read something. Obviously, I know the focus is on the three of us. It's out now. But uh, I did read something that uh, you're working on a a second book, and it takes place in a a similar world. Yes, yes, in a similar world, yeah. So, um, again, about relationships and trust in a way as well and sort of how people people deal with relationships in in good or healthy or not-so-healthy ways. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I read it in one night. All right. Thanks so much, oh, thank you so for, much. for making time to, to talk with me. No, of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you again so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's Ore Agbaje Williams, the author of the new novel, The Three of Us. You can find it everywhere books are sold. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every week, on WDCB. Make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely is theater critic Carrie Reed. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Glad to have you here. Jonathan Abarbanel, your dueling partner, is out on assignment this week. He'll be back next week. The seemingly odd couple relationship between renowned playwright George Bernard Shaw and world champion boxer Gene Tunney is the subject of Grippo Stage Company's world premiere play, Shaw vs. Tunney. The work is based on the 2010 book The Prizefighter and the Playwright, which was written by the boxer's son, Jay Tunney. Adapted for stage by Douglas Post, this production is directed by Nick Sandys. And for listeners maybe unfamiliar, Gene Tunney has a Chicago connection. He was one half of one of the most famous boxing matches of all time. A rematch against Jack Dempsey in 1927 took place at Soldier Field. A then-record crowd witnessed what's known as the Long Count Fight. Spoiler alert, Tunney won. I actually remember learning about both Dempsey-Tunney fights in an 8th grade social studies class, our teacher presented it as uh, Dempsey should have won, but didn't get to the neutral corner in time, allowing a dazed Tunney to gather himself and beat the count. And I just remember being so upset at the time as if there was some grand miscarriage of justice. I'm guessing uh, this production, Shaw versus Tunney, references that famous fight in some way. It recreates it to some extent. It, it, the play takes place over three separate periods of time um, between Tunney Shaw and Tunney's wife, Polly, who was uh, Polly Lauder, who was the heiress to the U- one of the one of the heiresses to the U.S. Steel fortune. When we first meet them, they are at uh, Shaw's home. Uh, Tunney has just retired from boxing, coming out, decided to you know go out on top, as it were. And they are visiting Shaw, who they've become sort of, Tunney's become sort of a pen pal of his 
Although, as we learned from the opening scene, it's a little bit strained because, or at least seemingly strained, because Tunney had spoken rather disfavorably about a book that um, Shaw had written in earlier years about boxing, a novel. Uh, and so Shaw is sort of pushing back on him a little bit on that one. But, you know, we soon find that it's all pretty much in good spirits. Shaw is quite a fan of the, the pugilistic art. I think it's interesting that we've had so many great writers who have been fascinated with boxing, Gary. There's AJ, the other great American writer, A.J. Liebling, who famously called Chicago the second city, but wrote a series of essays called The Sweet Science on Boxing. Joyce Carol Oates has long been known to be a fan of a fan of the sport as well. Uh, Shaw was certainly no exception. And while Tunney would we'd rather be talking about the great books, he's sort of, you know, setting off on a course of being an autodidact. He's already sort of an autodidact. He had to leave school at 15, and he really is interested in educating himself. He sees Shaw, rightly, as sort of a polymath, one of the geniuses of the age. And as played by Richard Hensel, Shaw is also a completely, you know, affable kind of fellow. Yes, he's got his little sharp, you know, pointy elbows that he'll get in every once in a while. But he's he's quite warm and quite welcoming to Tunney and his wife. And then in the second scene, they return that favor by inviting him to visit them while they're on their long extended holiday in the Adriatic uh, on an island called Brioni. That's where the bulk of the action takes place. And a lot of it really comes down to not so much, uh, you know, fighting over or reminiscing about the details of boxing, but really about faith. Uh, Tunney is still very much a devout Catholic. Shaw, as we know, was a very you know committed atheist. And through an incident brought on by a health crisis of Mrs. Tunney, the two men find themselves at least temporarily at odds in debating the role of faith and what good it can do uh, for humans. Um, but for the most part, this is not, you know, a super high points, low points, dramatic exercise. The play was also produced by Jay Tunney and uh, Jean Tunney's granddaughter, Teresa Tunney, So there is a little bit of a sense that this is a celebration. We're not going to learn any deep, dark secrets about either of these men. It is really a celebration of their friendship uh, as it evolves over the years. And I would say post-adaptation, I have not read the book, so I don't know how faithful it is, but I would assume that it's pretty faithful to the tone that Jay Tunney took in writing about his father. I read an interview with Jay Tunney where he talked about how, you know, their friendship got quite a bit of attention at the time, but, you know, Shaw died, in the, I think, in 1950, uh, or early 50s, and over the last half century or so, a lot of people have forgotten that this existed, this kind of unu- seemingly unusual friendship. So it's sort of a slice of life, a little slice of literary and sports history. I don't think that anyone going to this will find themselves necessarily, you know, in the grip of drama, <laughs> like, as, a, as, a, as a boxing match might put them. There's not, you know, a great deal of onstage, you know, violence. There's not, uh, despite the recreation of the long count, a lot of it really just does come from the wordplay and from the interactions. It's expositional to a fault, I would say, at the beginning. But ultimately, I would say that I also found myself, you know, rather taken with this. I didn't know a lot about the story, and it's always a pleasure to kind of see another side of figures from history that we think we maybe know well, or at least know the basics about, and realize that they have this whole other, you know, uh, these whole other dimensions to them. So how does the long count fight recreation fit into the story? Uh, Well, you know, Shaw keeps talking about having seen it and having witnessed Tony fight on 
on screen. You know, I guess there would have been what I guess it would have been the equivalent of uh, newsreels that he was watching it. Well, uh, Tunney really wants to talk a lot about literature. Shaw's like, no, no, but let's talk about that fight. And so they sort of actually do recreate it. You know, you see. Uh, Tunney going down, and then you hear the story uh, enacted by Shaw of him not, as, as Dempsey, not taking the neutral corner, the far neutral corner that he was supposed to. And, you know, it's kind of coy. There's the question of, did Tunney actually know what was going on, or was he kind of milking the system at that time to get every precious second of, you know, recovery that he could before getting back up on the canvas and resuming the fight? So you get a sense of the sort of being... An element of slyness to both of these men, which is sort of refreshing. You know, Tunney, at least on the surface, seems a little bit like, you know, the typical all-American hero, you know, American man of the 20th century, the new man. Um, But we also see that there's a little bit of a tormented soul there, too. Uh, One thing I think that both he and Shaw have in common that they talk about is, you know, the, the Irishness, leaving school early, having to blaze their own trail. And I think that that's another point of connection uh, with these two men that post-script really does make quite clear. This play is being presented by Grippo Stage Company, and that's an organization I'm not as familiar with. Are they new? Yeah, I know that last fall, I didn't get to see it, but they did um, James Sherman, another local playwright. Both James Sherman and Douglas Post were were members of the Victory Gardens Ensemble, so that's sort of interesting. Rippo have produced Chagall in School by James Sherman last fall, and I, I did not get a chance to see it, but I do remember that Jonathan gave it a recommendation, Was right. uh, spoke very highly of it, and that was, of course, about the painter Mark Chagall. So it would seem, at least based on these two shows, that they have an interest in plays that are by local writers and that in some way reference real-life people, either you know from the past, either artists, athletes, historical figures, and kind of giving new dimensions to their lives. And then small cast, what did you think of the performances? I thought the performances were excellent. Um, I will say that I think that the character of Polly Lauder, um, played by, or Polly Tunney, as we should call her, since she is married, played by Maddie Sachs, she's excellent. I feel the role could be beefed up, and if there's going to be a future production, I would hope that they would look at that a little bit. She does sort of serve a narrator function as well. So it sounds like not quite a knockout, maybe a, a TKO or a split decision as far as Carrie's concerned. Grippo Stage Company's world premiere, Shaw vs. Tunney, continues at Theater Wit through July 8th. Carrie, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. It's all Scottish all the time this coming weekend at the 37th annual Scottish Festival and Highland Games. Sure, bagpipes, caber tosses, and haggis are all on the menu, but there's a lot more Scottish culture to explore at the two-day event. This year's festival will be its swan song at Hamilton Lakes in Itasca, which has been its home for several years. The event will be moving somewhere new next year. I recently checked in with Chicago Scots President Gus Noble to talk about all the Scottish happenings set to take place Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th. How do you like to describe the event to someone who maybe has never attended it before? It's like you're stepping just a few steps into the suburbs or into Itasca, Illinois, and <laughs> the weekend. 
saving the price of a transatlantic plane ticket. It's like going to Scotland for the day. And you'll find every aspect of Scottish culture represented there at the Highland Games and, and the Scottish Festival, from food to music to dancing to genealogical research to athletics to, of course, food and drink and, and all sorts of other cultural stuff. This is the 37th edition of the festival. I'm imagining it's probably evolved over the years. It has. You know, we, we've... This year in particular, we're taking steps in, in some new directions and deeper into uh, a direction we've been traveling for, for many years, which is bagpiping. Um, you know, no Scottish festival would be complete without the sound of bagpipes reverberating around. And uh, we've always had a wonderful, really well-respected uh, and well-run bagpiping championship at our festival and this year we are hosting once again the largest bagpiping championship in North America. It was largest last year and we had 35 pipe bands. Well we've just signed up a 46 pipe band for this year so it's it's grown even up for the, the huge size it was last year. It's grown uh, ever more. A new direction is where we're really looking at Scottish food, which sometimes a, 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 a misplaced reputation for for being scary. <laughs> um, but we have some of the best food in the world, some of the best livestock, some of the best seafood. And coming to tell us about that is the national chef of Scotland, Gary McLean, who has become a great friend to the Chicago Scots over the years. He's been uh, such a, a great ambassador for not just Scotland's food and drink uh, sectors, but for Scotland herself. He is a, a really kind of engaging, uh, very, very interesting, very humorous guy. He, he won the UK's equivalent of Top Chef. It's called Master Chef over there, the, the TV show, and, and he won it over there. So he's he's got a great profile and a great personality for, for doing cooking demonstrations. So we have him coming over to the festival and he'll be doing a handful of cooking demonstrations to make some wonderful Scottish dishes. So that, that's going to be a, a new direction we travel in this year. Music, of course, will play a big role in the weekend celebration. Your radio station has kindly been our partner in putting it all together and uh, been our, our sponsor. Your own Greg Easterling will be the voice of that stage. And we have a, a selection of musicians that tell the story of what became of Scottish music when it left Scotland and travelled across the Atlantic and came through the Appalachians and into the honky-tonks of Nashville and Bakersfield and met the blues and became rock and roll you know, there's there's a wonderful story there that, that tracks both the the movement of people and the culture that they they brought with them uh, uh, across the Atlantic. After after all that is complete, and we come together for the mass band. Um, after having competed all day, the bands all get together, and because we have 46 bands this year, there will be well over a thousand musicians on the field at once and they'll play and march in unison. And the sound and the sight is just a unique 
and awe-inspiring experience. Uh, There's a moment where, led by either a piper or the piping section of a pipe band, they will play the first verse of Amazing Grace, and then with a kind of a swell of pipes and a, 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 a roll on the drums, there is a thousand musicians who will play Amazing Grace all together. And it really does set the hairs on the back of your neck up. And there's not a dry eye in the house. And Chicago is a, a city of immigrants. Is there a, a big Scottish community in the Chicago area? There, there is, yeah. We're actually one of the largest Scottish cultural organizations in the world. Um, we're known as the, the quiet Americans when we moved over here. The Scots um, really kind of assimilated, and, and there were initially some distinctly Scottish areas, uh, but those those neighbourhoods have have not necessarily remained uh, only Scottish. They've, they've become uh, part of other cultures, uh, uh, neighbourhoods, and, and community uh, communities. But if you look around the Chicago area, there, there are an incredible number of Scottish names that reflect the, the immigrants who came here, whether it's Midlothian or Dundee or Bannockburn or, or, or you know, up north, the names of the streets. There's, there's Caldwell and Campbell. And, you know, there, there are all sorts of Scottish names. If you, if you look uh, just below the surface, it, it kind of tells the story of the Scots who came here. Uh, the the the, the, uh, the when Chicago was only a small frontier town of just twelve thousand people, that's that's when the Chicago Scots were formed in eighteen forty five. We were still Chicago was just a tiny little town on the frontier, and a group of Scots got together and said, you know, we must do something to to form an organisation that brings something of home of Scotland to the United States. But while we're doing this, we must also do something that's of service to to the greater good. And ever since we were formed on, on the 30th of November, St. Andrew's Day, 1845, we have been driven by those two commitments. They've, they've stayed with us, you know, to to bring home and to to serve, uh, to serve the community, to serve kith and kin, to serve family. And when we were... Uh, in, in our, our kind of our days of articulating how that would happen from a, a mission and purpose perspective, we, we built a nursing home uh, uh, on the south side of Chicago initially, um, near Douglas Park. But uh, as that area became uh, busier, overcrowded, and, and filled, we then moved our nursing home out to what's now known as North Riverside. As far as the history of Chicago Scots, I bet that's that's probably something that that surprises a lot of people that it's the the area's oldest nonprofit. Yeah, it's it's really been around, you know, since uh, since Chicago was just taking its first steps. We've surely made our mark on the city too, the Scots. Um, we've we've had the, the captains of industry have been Scots, the, the people who've led some of the the best and most iconic and important cultural institutions in the city, whether it's the Field Museum or the Art Institute, some of the schools, uh, Northwestern, the School of the Art Institute. It's a former president uh, of the, the school, is a member of our board, Tony Jones, wonderful, wonderful governor. 
speaking of governors, uh, we, we have several governors in Illinois uh, who've been uh, very proud of their, their Scottish roots, including the dearly recently departed Governor Thompson. We've had judges, we've had entertainers, the Scots get everywhere, and we're, we're very proud to be Chicagoans too. And I wanted to really quickly get back to the uh, the food. You mentioned uh, acclaimed chef Gary McLean. Of course, anyone named Gary's got to be a good guy, so uh, looking forward to that. But everyone knows about haggis, and so maybe, yeah, sometimes people think about that. But, like, what's your favorite Scottish delicacy? Well, I grew up in the borders of Scotland, which is um, some of the best uh, livestock raising farms in, in Scotland. The best lamb in, in the world comes from there. So I've always loved lamb. We live, I mean, Scotland is surrounded by some of the, the freshest water. Uh, the seas around Scotland have some of the best shellfish uh, and, and seafood. This year's Scottish Festival and Highland Games will be taking place Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Hamilton Links in Itasca, and that's where it's been for as long as I remember talking to you about it. But from what I've heard, this is going to be the, the last year it's there. Do you know where it'll be next year? We we are hopeful we can make an announcement for sure. We just want to to spend some time uh, making sure uh, we're, we're able to take the event to the, the place we've been looking at. But frankly, we, we want to just take a moment to recognize that we've We've grown the festival while it's been in Itasca, and we've loved being there. They've been a great uh, home for us, a great host for us. We're surely going to miss them, but you know the the job that they're there to do at Hamilton Lakes in Itasca is develop real estate. They're good at doing their job, and they're growing just as they've helped us grow the festival. They have grown their their business, and they're developing the real estate. Um, where we would host the games, so it's with um, it's with great fondness for the time we've spent in Itasca that we're going to be moving on. But we'll look to to celebrate the times we've had there, and then hopefully in the the, the times ahead we can make an announcement about where we're going to be headed next. Gus, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Of course, it was a great pleasure. That's Gus Noble. He's the president of Chicago Scots. You can find more information about the 37th Annual Scottish Festival and Highland Games at scottishfestivalchicago.org. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. A documentary that offered an inspiring look at a local community's efforts to save its grade school was a Peabody nominee this year. Let the Little Light Shine documents efforts to save the National Teachers Academy Elementary School at 55 West Cermak. The school, which serves 80% African-American students, is among the highest-ranking K-8 through grade public schools in Chicago. In the winter of 2018, the Chicago Board of Education approved a CPS plan to transition National Teachers Academy, a.k.a. NTA, into a public high school. Not wanting to lose what they viewed as a beacon of light for their community, a group of parents and students began a fight to save the school. Let the Little Light Shine provides an overview of the various moving parts of the story, giving special attention to the reasons why NTA is such an important part of the community and examining where the effort to transition this school started. When we think about schools in our communities, 
We have need to look at them more than just what they do from an education standpoint. They can serve as building blocks for families. They can serve as families. That was the one thing about National Teachers Academy is that why it was so important and why this proposal was so damaging and would create so much harm is that you'd be breaking up a family. This is Kevin Shaw. He's the director of Let the Little Light Shine, the film which has garnered rave reviews, aired on PBS's documentary series POV late last year. It was nominated for a Peabody this spring and is now available to stream on many video-on-demand platforms. I caught up with the Chicago native and current Bolingbroke resident last fall to talk about the journey to make Let the Little Light Shine. I read that your connection to this story came from a a former childhood classmate that she was going through some stuff and you read about it and that's kind of what keyed you into this? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, So the main film participant, the main parent in our story, Elizabeth Greer and I were elementary school classmates. We both went to the same elementary school on the south side of Chicago in in Beverly. And uh, we had grown apart. I had lost contact with one another, uh, had reconnected on Facebook after many decades. And over the course of that time, uh, I noticed that she was posting articles and news items and videos about her activism around trying to save her children's school, uh, National Teachers Academy, from being closed and transitioned into a high school. And The story initially of what was going on there at NTA caught my eye uh, because I was really interested in some of the dynamics that were going on in the South Loop neighborhood. Uh, But then I was also really intrigued by this kind of new version of Elizabeth that I had seen online. You know, when she was out there protesting, she was a different person in regards to the, 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 the classmate that I had known back in elementary school. She was no longer that shy, quiet, keep to yourself person. She was on the front lines here, really advocating strongly for uh, a position that she believed in. And so that idea of an average everyday person kind of stepping into their voice, stepping into their power and fighting for something that they truly believed in, in terms of social justice, was something that intrigued me as well. And so those two kind of themes really made me go ahead and pursue this idea of wanting to follow the parents, students, and educators there at National Teachers Academy as they went through this journey. And so in those early days when you you kind of have that intrigue, then do you have any idea at that point like what this could turn into? I knew there was going to be an end game. So I knew that the school was either going to transition into a high school And that was going to bring some sort of of dramatic element to the community there in terms of how they were going to deal with that change. Or they were going to be successful in their efforts in stopping this proposal from happening. And that was going to bring its own emotional climax to the story as well. So I knew there was going to be an ending. I just didn't know which way it was going to go. And that's kind of the the beauty of of doing this sort of documentary filmmaking that I love to do and and other films that I've seen in the past that have really resonated with me. Uh, Filmmakers don't really know what life is going to bring to the participants who have agreed to allow a filmmaker to document their journeys, you know. And so, yeah, I'm along for the ride. 
I'm excited to see what happens. And you have uh, tremendous access to the uh, National Teachers Academy community, teachers, staff, the, the families of the students who go there. What was the community's reaction when you approached them with this idea about making a documentary? Well, I think Elizabeth vouched for me in the very beginning, and then I just really spent the time and the effort in trying to get the community to know me as an individual that did not have, you know, it wasn't trying to exploit the community for any particular reason, like I was truly engaged with what they were trying to do in regards to saving their school. And so when you come with that sort of authenticity, I think that brings a lot of weight. People then begin to open up and and trust you. So, you know, I'm not at every function or meeting or event or celebration with my camera. You know, a lot of times I'm just there as a, a person, as a citizen, getting to know everybody. And I think that that speaks a lot of volumes too, because then people really recognize that you are interested in them as individuals and truly interested in what they're going through. And again, you're not trying to uh, exploit their story for any sort of profit or, or career gain or anything. Just from the outside looking in, a Chicago area resident who isn't familiar with NTA might not understand how this situation came to be, but what is it about National Teachers Academy Elementary School that is so unique? Well, I think for one, it's a beacon for black and brown children here in the city. I think um, the educators there have been doing a tremendous job, specifically for the group of students that attend there. A lot of them have come from uh, the South Luton neighborhood, uh, from lower income families, from some of the uh, homes that uh, around there and the Dearborn homes, formerly the Icky homes that used to be there. Um, so these are children that are sometimes written off that, uh, that we have low expectations of, and these kids are excelling and they are a shining light to this city and should be held up as a model to what public education, especially at the elementary school level, can be. I think it's more than just them being a great school and, and students getting great grades, their community, their family. And I think that's one of the reasons why when this proposal was introduced to kind of transition the school from this elementary school into a high school, you would be breaking down this community that had been built at NTA that had taken many years to build. You know, when it was first built in the early 2010s, the school struggled. Uh, They fought through that struggle. They became a high-performing school, top-ranked by the city's own metrics. And so through all that work, they had really bonded and became a, a place where another option for parents in the neighborhood to send their kids to We had seen, the city had seen uh, previously in 2013 when 49 elementary schools were closed. Pretty much all those were in black and brown neighborhoods in the city. And there was a lot of harm that was created in those closures. And so that same harm was about to be uh, perpetrated here in this South Loop neighborhood elementary school. And that's why so many people were fighting against the transition. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with filmmaker 
Kevin Shaw about his new documentary, Let the Little Light Shine. I'm watching it, and uh, you know, we already referenced the, the incredible access you had to this school. And then at a certain point, I started to think, I'm like, wow, I can't believe Chicago Public Schools was okay with, with this. And then, uh, you know, I don't think this is a spoiler, but then it's kind of revealed that they really didn't know what was going on. So was there a, a concern from you that CPS would find out what you were doing and try to shut it down? I tried to engage the district from the very beginning and um, just never got any responses from them. I tried to engage the CEO, even through an intermediary from the school board, and just never got any, never got a response from anyone. So for them to say that they didn't know what was going on, I don't think it's quite true. Maybe they didn't believe that the film would be made and be released and get a public media television deal and be available to national audiences, not only on television, but then in theaters as well as we're doing now. So I wish we were able to engage them. I think I never wanted to, and I didn't, I never wanted to put any of the children in harm's way. And that was always my number one thought in filming in schools. I have a history of filming in school, so I know how to film in them safely and make sure that I have everyone's permissions to do that. And I'm not talking just about the educators, I'm talking about the families, more importantly. So I just took the effort along with my team, my producer, Rachel Dixon, and we just made the extra effort to make sure that all the families knew that we were filming and when we were filming. And certainly in working with the educator, the administrator, uh, the principal at that time, Isaac Castellas, who allowed us to be in the school. You know, he says in the movie why he allowed us to do that, knowing the risks that even he was taking. At the end of the day, you know, we can be critical to the things that we love and, and cherish the most, whether that be people in our family or institutions and it's institutions that we love, and, and people love public education. People love sending their kids to Chicago public schools. They want the best when they're sending their kids to Chicago public schools. And so they hold them in high regard. And sometimes at times they're going to be critical of Chicago public schools because they want the best for their kids and they want the best for their schools and for their institutions. And so if anything, if we're critical of the district in the movie, it's coming out of a space of love because people love public education. I did want to mention, as I was watching it, I noticed, you know, the, the subtle jazz score underneath it. And I was like, oh, I got to see who did this. And then I, Khalil El-Zabar, he was actually one of the first people I ever had on the show. Back when I first started this, uh, which was in 2014, and I just remember thinking he was like the coolest guy ever. How did you connect with uh, Khalil? I connected with him on a, on a show, on a radio interview. I just started to investigate his sound, his music off of that interview there. I just thought that he was such a unique individual, had a very unique sound, and I was looking for something different uh, musically for this particular film. There's probably a preconceived notion of, of what music would fit for like a you know young African-American elementary school, young adolescents, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to go against that. You know, I wanted to flip it up and give you something a little bit more unexpected and something that was 
know, with true instruments, wasn't symphonic. And Khalil really hit all of those elements for me. So, you know, believe in the blind email, the blind cold call. <laughs> I sent him an email based off his website. I sent him a little trailer that I had cut at that point in time. And I asked him, would he be interested in scoring the project? And he, to his credit, wrote me back and said, let's talk. And um, that was the beginning of our collaboration. That's Kevin Shaw. He's the director of Let the Little Light Shine. The documentary, which was a finalist for a Peabody Documentary Award, is available to stream on a handful of on-demand platforms. You can find more information at lightshinefilm.com. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Superheroes have taken over the Elmhurst Art Museum. The work of renowned comic book artist Alex Ross is the subject of the West Suburban Museum's newest exhibition. Paintings, giant prints, and life-sized busts of some of the world's most popular heroes and villains are featured in Marvelocity, the art of Alex Ross. Ross, who has some local connections, is among the most well-known comic book artists working today. He's drawn for both major comic publishers, Marvel and DC, over a career that spanned almost 30 years. This exhibit focuses specifically on his work for Marvel, so visitors will see plenty of Iron Man, Captain America, and Spider-Man. I recently visited the Elmhurst Art Museum to check out Marvelocity, and I sat down with the museum's executive director, John McKinnon, to talk about the exhibit. I feel like I've been hearing about this exhibit for a while now. When did you start first thinking about bringing Marvelocity to the Elmhurst Art Museum? We probably started more than a year ago, but really started talking about it probably nine months ago. We have different crowds that come from one show to the next, including our summer audience. And we were really excited about finding something that was family friendly, that was a very kind of more popular. We've seen trends of, of people that come, which makes sense, right? People are, are home from school or looking to travel and get out to other towns. Uh, so we've seen a bit more tourism and other things and, and glad to have something that not only is a big draw, but is a potential gateway to introduce, say, young people to an art museum. And so for the uninitiated that maybe aren't familiar with the comic book world, Alex Ross is a renowned comic book artist who has local ties? Absolutely, yeah. So Alex Ross is from the Chicago area. He's quietly worked, been working away, mostly does comic book covers, but is known for doing some uh, larger issues you know, for DC and Marvel. Uh, this show par- focuses on his Marvel work, and in fact it starts from when he's age of five and then continues through. And we're really excited about not only showing a Chicago-based artist that really has a lot of acclaim in his field. I mean, this guy has so many Eisner Awards and other things, which are specific comic book awards. Uh, and I think there was one fan favorite award that he won seven years in a row, and they had to retire it because, you know, <laughs> they, they just couldn't keep doing it and giving it to him. But no, we're excited about shining a light on, on the artwork that he does that then goes into these comics. You know, he um, has this reputation for combining this kind of action-packed scene with hyper-realism and uh, is classically trained and I feel like there's a lot of different stories and a lot of different things we can do as an art museum to kind of uh, showcase that. And you just alluded to it, but what would you say separates Ross's work from other comic book artists? Some of his 
work featuring these iconic characters is truly show-stopping. Beautiful, which is a word we don't often use with comic books, is it his technique that sets him apart? I would say it's technical skill, right? He's been called, uh, I've heard him called the Caravaggio of Cape Crusaders <laughs> or the Michelangelo of comic books or all these other things. So, you know, he has this, this style and he has the rendering uh, that really helps characters jump off the page. But he also has this really deep respect and reverence for the characters, for the stories, and all the artists that came before him. Uh, he's even done uh, specific odes to Jack Kirby in particular. Um, so I think that those things in combination have really helped make him a fan favorite. McKinnon says the exhibit provides a different lens to see Ross's work. Even comic book fans familiar with his drawings likely have only seen them on the cover or pages of a comic book. The show is surprising because you see drawings that you may have seen reproduced on comic book covers. They look even more impressive in person, but then there are other things that will surprise you, like the work that Alex has done with some collaborators to create these life-size life busts of these characters. And, you know, he didn't do it solo. He worked with some people that sculpt and create these things, but you can see the level of detail in the sculptures that are very uh, representative of his drawings. Um, these things in combination with his drawings, in combination with his technique, really do make these characters seem more lifelike and more real. And that's pretty much what sets him apart from other comic book artists, right? You might see those artists quickly sketch something or they're on a deadline and they have got to create a comic book and so they don't have the time, but he's really kind of looked at every little detail, maybe made photos, maybe had models staged for him, dressed them up in costume, and really gotten it right. Uh, so it's very impressive to see because of that. Marvelocity originated at the Best Bauer Dunn Museum in Libertyville back in 2019. It's traveled to some institutions in other states in the intervening years and is now at the Elmhurst Art Museum. Yes, the Marvelocity show has traveled the nation and has come back to the Chicago area. Uh, it was several years ago, and it feels like even maybe a decade ago because of COVID. Yeah. So we're uh, excited to show it to our audiences, which are very different than theirs, but also you know bring back the show and um, you know do some other things with it. Uh, we've had public art installation done by eight area artists and youth groups um, that is free, open to the public outside. And, uh, and has a really great audio guide uh, by the artists. Uh, we also have family weekends with uh, different uh, comic book workshops and comic book uh, drawing activities. And we'll also do something that kind of takes a page out of his book and do a specific costumed character life drawing session with a live model. Uh, so that you know is something really cool and we're looking forward to and also showcases some of our in-house talent from our uh, teaching instructors and artists that work here. Obviously, the art is the centerpiece for something like this, but there's also a lot of additional programming that's being offered. How important is that additional programming when you present an exhibit like this? I think that whenever you have a show, people will say, oh, I'd love to see that. But then when there is an event that is attached to it, it's even, it sweetens the deal, they, that they're even more motivated to come. So that's when we'll see a lot of families come for family day and we just say, you know, it is kid friendly, come on out. Um, so it sends a different message and, and, you know, does bring in good crowds. The exhibit opens with some examples of his work from when he was a kid, so I'm guessing his family saved those? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, 
it makes me feel bad about throwing my kids' drawings away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, uh, whether it was him or his family or you know something, someone saved these things, and so it really starts at the age of five. And there's a good gallery wall of some of them when he was a child uh, that are really impressive in and of, in of themselves. Um, and then continues right through his through his career and has some highlights uh, up to um, 2018, and I think that that is inspiring for different groups. For instance, we have a very popular summer camp, and these summer campers have come in and made their own drawings of Spider-Man at the ages of seven or five or other things, and then uh, it's it's amazing where it kind of comes full circle because Alex talks about being inspired by a cartoon of Spider-Man when he was age five or so, doing lots of drawings, immediately feeling like I have to make my own of this and telling these stories. And now his show is up and another generation is coming and seeing that and being inspired by it. So it's really cool to see. I often, when I interview artists of any type of discipline, I'll ask when they realize maybe they had a talent or aptitude. You can tell like his nine-year-old crayon drawing that there's something there. Right, right. It's amazing, yeah. We're talking a day before Marvelocity opens, uh, but it seems like the Elmhurst community and DuPage County is excited for this exhibit. Do you get a sense that there's a, a lot of anticipation for this? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, summer is a great time for the show also because of the summer blockbuster movies, right? So, and again, we picked this date out of the hat of when we were going to get the show, when the show was going to travel here, but it also happens to be the opening weekend of this new Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse movie. So there's a lot of different things out in the air about this, and, you know, I think that adds to the interest of the show. That's John McKinnon. He's the executive director of the Elmhurst Art Museum. Marvelocity, the art of Alex Ross, is currently on display through August 20th. You can find more info at elmhurstartmuseum.org. Can you name this tune? Yes, it's the... Closing credits song for the Incredible Hulk TV show from the 70s. Only here on the arts section. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the show. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for another edition of the Arts Section right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope you have a great week. What happened to our summer weather? Thanks for listening. <laughs>